Hello, and welcome back to the Hammerslay Inquisition, the world's most self-indulgent interview show. I am Jason Hammerslay, and my guest today is a person that is least likely to be familiar to my typical listening audience. She is, essentially, a friend that I made accidentally and in secret. Back in the early aughts, online dating websites were the domain of weirdos, misfits, perverts, and freaks. And this is before it became a highly specialized, multi-billion dollar industry and a place where you might find your uncle or your boss. Way back when, it was basically the online version of the most Eisley spaceport from Star Wars. And I was certainly a misfit and lonesome and utterly hopeless in the traditional mating venues like bars and clubs. And logically, it just seemed like it would be a good showcase for a guy who was not necessarily much to look at, but could occasionally be charming by stringing words and sentences together. To that point, most of my matches on those online websites were either disappointing or creepy or both. But then I met MacGrad99, and we traded emails back and forth, back and forth, and just couldn't stop. She was whip-smart, darkly funny, fluent in both Sports Night and Sports Center. And starting on March 1st, 2001, I wrote her an email pretty much every weekday for more than 10 months. And these were not short one-paragraph emails either. I would spend most of the day in between work assignments thinking about things to tell her, and then I would spin these long, discursive yarns filled with jokes and non-sequiturs, and then hit send, and then start the process all over again. It was like having a journal that talked back to you. And I think we silently decided that we didn't want to mess it up by meeting, so it took a really long time for us to do that. And by that point, our relationship wasn't romantic. It was too lived in and comfortable and honest <laughs> to be romantic. We were friends, and we have been ever since, even after she moved back to her Midwestern home just a few years later. And now, MacGrad99, also known as Kaylee Haga, also known as Cece, is on the phone with me from Chaska, Minnesota. Is that how you pronounce that, Kaylee? That is correct. That's quite an introduction. Oh, well, thank you for gracing my podcast with your presence, Cece. I'm very happy to be talking with you today. It is my distinct pleasure, Juju. I'm happy to be talking to you as well. Oh, and just in case my mom's family is listening to this, that nickname Juju isn't a religious epithet. It's actually just an affectionate, non-denominational nickname. So just uh, going forward, please keep that in mind. Yes, thanks for covering. Shall we start with questions and tangents and answers? Sounds good. All right. Questions and answers. Kaylee, you graduated from McAllister College with a bachelor's degree in geography as well as political science. Can you tell me what is the capital of Iceland? Reykjavik? Yes. All right. Reykjavik? I have no idea. Woohoo! Yes. I don't know if that's actually how you pronounce it, but yes, uh, I call it Reykjavik. That's actually, I think, correct. So congratulations. You've won up to me again. Well, the way you pronounced it made it sound like you knew more than I did. So uh, you're pretty good at faking it anyway. How many provinces are there in Canada? Uh, seven. Ooh, I'm sorry. The answer is ten. Ten provinces plus three territories, the most recent of which was just founded in 1999, which I did not know about. There Previously, there was just the Northwest Territory and the Yukon Territory, and now there's something called the Nunavut. Uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce that either, but anyway, that would have been probably after your... Um, your graduation with your degree in geography, so uh, I won't hold that one against you too much. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Name the three countries that border Luxembourg. Oh, dear God. <laughs> I'm wholly unprepared for this. Uh... Right, do you mean to tell me that your degree from McAllister College did not prepare you for this interview? I was quite clear that everything was on the table for this interrogation. Um, <laughs> correct. 
let's just say I majored in geography because it was what I had the most credits in when I had to declare. <laughs> okay. Well, this is for real credit. Jason credit. No, it sounds like maybe I've stumped you, so uh, I'll just let you know that the answer is France, Germany, and Belgium. Oh, see, yeah. Last geography question. Which state is commonly referred to as America's <laughs> I'm going to assume Florida. That's correct. Whoa! That's correct. <laughs> you don't have to give back your diploma. Well, <laughs> that last one was a gimme in more ways than one, so. Uh, all right, next question. Moving on. Okay. Your mother is a drama teacher, is that correct? Or was? She, she was, yep. Mm-hmm. If your life was made into a musical performed by high school students, which archetype would you want to play you? This is a multiple choice question. A, the really pretty popular girl who is hiding secret traumas and an undiagnosed eating disorder. B, the anti-establishment rebel who reads Sylvia Plath but also has a soft spot for puppies? Or C, the quiet, bookish nerd who just needs somebody to see the beauty underneath and liberate her from her oppressive sense of self-discipline? Wow. I have to go with B. The anti-establishment rebel. Yeah. Was that you? No, it was probably more C. But in later life, I think I've become more B. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it true that you were an intern in the Clinton White House? Yes. What was your job? I worked in the press office. The press office, media yeah. relations. Mm-hmm. What was the dress code? Um, <laughs> I wore suits. Uh, it was definitely business. Um, I was there in the fall of 98, so it was during the impeachment trial. So the dress code is very, very conservative. <laughs> mm-hmm. That makes sense. Uh-huh. That makes sense. In your career, you have essentially bounced between public sector government jobs and lobbying organizations. Would you say that you're part of the problem? <laughs> Jesus. No, no, I would not say that I'm part of the problem. I think the problem is that we're living in an increasingly polarized country. And in fact, my work all along has been to try to bring everybody together at a table and get consensus moving forward. I think the fact of the matter is that nobody wants to come to the table anymore. Well, what kind of table is it? What are you serving at the table? Good public policy, Jason. Oh, a rare delicacy. Tell me, are you picturing a round table or is it one of those long dinner tables where people have to shout so the other person at the other end can hear them? Well, that's probably closer to reality, but it, in my mind, it's a round table where we can all reach each other. Whether to throttle or to hug is really up to the people that are sitting there. Speaking of hugging and learning, you currently work for your local school district. Is that right? Yep. Do you get your summers off? No. Nope. Do you get your winters off? Nope. Is your work ever done? No. According to its website, the personalized learning journey led by Eastern Carver County Schools gives students the power to shape their learning and prepare students to achieve their personal best. What does personalized mean in that context? Do all students get their own bowling shirts? <laughs> well, this isn't Milwaukee. No, if we were in Milwaukee, they might get their own personalized bowling shirts. Um, here in Minnesota, it would probably more likely be a curling shirt. Oh. Um, but uh, but no, that's that's not what personalized learning means in this context. It, it means that uh, kids get access to the resources they need to succeed. So if they are on a faster track, they have access to um, the skills and education and classes that might help prepare them for wherever they're going. And if they need a little bit more support, they get that too. That is a very practiced and well-rehearsed answer. I'm very proud of you. Well, thank you. I've been in PR for a while. As I noted before, you seem to have faith in government. If and when you are elected to public office, <laughs> what job would you recommend that I apply for in your administration? Oh, hmm, that's a really good question. Take into account all of my, my positive and negative qualities. Like, you'd think I'd go with communications, but I think I'd rather have you as my chief of staff. Am I mean enough to be a chief of staff? I think you could be. I think you could be. You've never made me angry enough to see me mean enough to be a chief of staff. Well, but you don't need to be, like, I'm not talking about, like, the Rahm Emanuel model, necessarily. Like, you don't need to go out and kill people for me. Did I miss a news item about Rahm Emanuel? (laughs) No. Um... 
but I think your chief of staff needs to be somebody who's going to be honest with you and has got a good practical sense of what might work and what wouldn't. And I think those are both qualities that you have. You can get an assistant chief of staff to go break kneecaps. I'm very flattered uh, that you think of me that way. I, I worry that I would be maybe not even too nice, but too naive. That's true. F- for politics in general. But nevertheless, that's a very kind thing for you to say. Well. Speaking of running, is jogging still your preferred form of exercise? I run. I don't know that I jog. Now we're going to get snotty. Oh, what's the <laughs> difference between running and jogging? Well, jogging feels like something that you do, like, like I run races. Like I actually like physically exert myself as opposed to just kind of moving sort of fast in a velvet sweatsuit um, with makeup on. So it's about intent. I think I think so. Yes. Purpose. Intensity. Intent. Yes. Mm-hmm. I have often asserted that runners, and I mean people who are like super intense and kind of pathological about it, people who run races, Mm -hmm. are tortured souls who are either running away from something traumatic or running toward something redemptive. Granting this premise for a moment, which of those would you say you are? I'm running from trauma for sure. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I don't think that, I think that's actually pretty astute. I mean, I'm sure there are some people that run just because they're actually naturally athletically gifted, but the rest of us poor souls... uh, are either running from or towards something. Well, I think it's wonderful that you found a form of therapy in which you could potentially get a medal at the end, because that doesn't happen with most forms of therapy. That's true. Maybe it should, though. Maybe more people would pursue therapy if they got some sort of participation trophy. Yeah, it's hard to sort of judge an objective measure by which someone would sort of earn a trophy. How many breakthroughs can one person have? But um, That's true. Some days just showing up is enough. All right, you may have a point there. I think you and I might be onto something. We could probably write a proposal on this. There you go. How many tattoos do you have, Kaylee? Um, boy, I kind of lost count. That means you have a lot. I have a lot. Yeah, I have. I have more than more than twelve and less than twenty. What do you <laughs> think are the criteria for a good quality tattoo? Well, certainly the shop needs to be clean and uh, registered with the state. Oh, that, that's um, very practical. You know, like let's. let's <laughs> I'm talking about the aesthetics, though. Um, I don't. I don't. I am not a tattoo snob. I think a quality tattoo has to be something that is personally important to you. Um, so whether it's uh, a lifelike image or a animaniac or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, as long as as long as it's relevant to you, it doesn't really matter what other people looking at it think. How cool would a Jason Hammerslay logo have to be for you to consider adopting it as a tattoo? Uh, <laughs> Jason, I love you, but I don't think that I would probably put a Jason Hammerslay tattoo on my body. What if you thought of it as a sponsorship opportunity? Yeah, no, no, that's not how I roll. But there are plenty of people out there who, for the right price, probably would gladly even get a facial tattoo. Yes, but I'm buying legitimacy and integrity here. I don't want to be associated with some loser. I want prime real estate. I want my logo on Kaylee Haga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry. I think I think my husband might have issues with that too. Fair enough. Not that he gets to say about what goes on my body. Let's just be clear here. But um. <laughs> all right, yeah. it might be an awkward. You're just you're putting your foot down all over the place. I am. Uh, speaking of which, you live with your husband and three growing boys, yes? Yes. Do you have any tips for combating household odors? <laughs> I don't mean to perpetuate any outdated stereotypes <laughs> about gender roles with that question, but uh, <laughs> nor do I want to suggest anything about the, uh, you know, the Haga household, but it's a natural question. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, I think start them on deodorant early. That's important. Nightly showers. Nightly showers are key, um, and definitely letting the boys have their own bathroom is important to the survival of all. Have their own bathroom. That's a nice, that's a nice yeah. perk for them. Uh, yeah, well, and for me. Let's be real. On the whole, what is the toilet seat situation like in the house, up or down? Oh, they've all been very well trained. The toilet seat is always down. Oh, that's great. We know who the alpha is in the family. You're doing your job as a mother. I am. That's correct. All right, since I can't sink any lower than that question, it is now time for 
questions from the listening audience. Okay. Now for my favorite part of the show. What did I say? Talk to the audience. Oh, God, this is always death. This is the part of the podcast where I give the listeners an opportunity to ask a question of my guest. And since you, Kaylee, probably outnumber my listeners, I'm going to pass along questions that have been posed to a different podcast. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Our first question was addressed to the podcast Real Life Ghost Stories, which is pretty much what it sounds like. Emma and Dan from Canterbury, England, discuss, and I quote, hauntings, ghosts, death, aliens, psychology, skeptics, and everything in between. Are you afraid of ghosts, Kaylee? Am I afraid of ghosts? Uh, No. No. Our first question comes from Jamie, who asks, in what I read as a very sort of exasperated tone, she asks, have you or have you not been abducted by aliens? I promise I will believe your answer no matter how crazy it sounds. Well, um, I hate to disappoint you, but I do not believe that I have ever been abducted by aliens. Um, I have no lost time. I mean, I got really drunk a couple times, but even then... Have you ever felt alienated? <laughs> oh, yes, frequently. <laughs> that counts for something, I think. Well, yeah, I suppose. You know, I actually found a related question from the Ask Me Anything podcast, which is the product of J.D. Greer Ministries, whose namesake is the pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, and who is the 62nd president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And one of his listeners asked him, can Christians believe in aliens? And so, Kaylee, as uh, nominally, I believe, a person of faith, Mm -hmm. can Christians believe in aliens? Well, this Christian believes in aliens. So yes, I guess the answer is yes. I think that the universe is, I think it would be impossible not to believe that there is more going on than just this planet when you look out at the expanse and and life can happen anywhere. So yes, I believe Christians can believe in aliens. So it's not inconsistent with the Bible or... Well, I suppose, again, if you're somebody who believes that the Bible is the literal word of God, probably you have a whole lot of issues with science and or the things that you can actually observe in front of you. (laughs) Um, But uh, I I don't believe that. But I do believe that um, there is, in fact, a higher power. And I think that he could manifest himself in different ways in different parts of the universe. So sure, I think that absolutely, if there's life here, it makes no sense to me that when I look up at the sky at night, that there's not life out there as well. Yeah, I'm sort of with you. One part of my brain believes that it's mathematically unlikely that we're totally alone Mm -hmm. as sentient life forms in the universe. But then there's part of my brain that also thinks it's just pure hubris to think that we are anything more than just a totally random fluke or glitch that takes place in this infinitesimally brief period on galactic timescales. Sure, but then why why wouldn't there be other glitches? I guess that's my pushback there, is that if we're a glitch, why wouldn't there be other glitches given all of the thousands and thousands of different stars and galaxies and et cetera? Like, it just seems unrealistic to me that we are a unique glitch <laughs> in the Matrix. Well, maybe. Maybe. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I'm still not entirely convinced there's intelligent life on this planet. Well, that's fair. Well, that sort of segues very well into the other question that I have from that Ask Me Anything podcast with uh, Pastor J.D. Greer. And he he received the question, is America exceptional? Or another way to phrase the question is, what is the right attitude to have toward the United States, pride or shame? Wow. That's not an easy question. So... I think the idea of America is exceptional. I think America in theory could be exceptional, but I think it can be, I think it's both. I mean, I am both proud and ashamed. You know, I think that there's a lot of uh, opportunities we have in this country because of the way that it was created that folks in other countries don't have. We are not a melting pot, but we are an accumulation of a whole lot of different identities. And for the most part, um, we are able to live together uh, in relative peace. Maybe not on a macro level, but on a micro level, for sure. But, I mean, it's a system that's been built um, to sustain certain people in power. Um, And certainly, uh, as we are seeing now, we're in a moment where there's a whole lot of corruption and abuse of power. 
and so I think I think you can be both. I mean, I certainly love this country, um, and I'm glad to have been born here, but boy, there's a lot about it that I'd like to change. I'm sorry. The answer we were looking for was ennui. <laughs> ennui. Yes, ennui. Uh, incidentally, the pastor's response to that question was, yes, America is exceptional, but his argument is that it's not because we were personally blessed by God. He argues that it's because the U.S. Constitution is rooted in Christian principles, what he referred to as Judeo-Christian morality, Protestant work ethic, dignity, self-reliance, limited government with checks and balances that recognized, uh, and I quote again here, universal human depravity. Oh. What's your response to that idea? Um, well, I always think it's really ironic that people talk about how the Constitution is rooted in Christianity, when in fact the reason that the the pilgrims left England was for religious persecution. So, I mean, I think that, that separation of church and state is actually pretty clearly outlined um, in our founding documents. And I think much like other formative documents like the Bible, people tend to pick and choose um, what they want out of it to affirm their positions. Well, this is a good time to remind all of our, all of our listeners Haley's degree in college was in geography and political science. So she is, uh, she is bringing the wood here. All right. It's time to get real. Okay. In this segment, we are going to put the silly away and bring out the big question. This part is called, But Seriously. Seriously. So as I mentioned before, you currently work in the education field. Your mom worked in education. You have three school-age boys. Mm -hmm. Plus, you have experience in both local and federal government. I, too, am a, a product of the public school system where my mother was an English teacher, and I still feel very connected to that community spiritually. What do you think are the ills in our education system that need fixing from your perspective? And how do we fix those problems? Well, I mean, I think you still see um, pretty significant achievement gaps, both racially and economically. And that's something that schools have struggled with um, for more than a generation now. You know, I think much like other systems, the education system has been built to privilege one story one set of experiences, and um, it takes a pretty significant paradigm shift to open up the doors and create an education system that is equitable um, for every student that walks through the doors. So I think that's a challenge. What do you mean when you say it privileges one story? What's that story you're talking about? Well, I mean, when you think about, like, the history that we learn, um, it is very much from the perspective of the white male or the white female as we get into the 20th century. But we we don't tell the full story of America. Um, we don't give a lot of people who have families that have lived in this country for generations the opportunity to see their own stories and what we teach people in the literature that we teach in the history that we teach. Um, you know, I think I think that's a problem um, because we're getting only one side of the story. And for folks, um, certainly students of color, students from marginalized communities, um, when they don't see their story also being told and held up, you know, it's hard to buy in to what they're learning. Well, I can certainly understand how that influences historical, social studies education, English mm -hmm. education. How does that influence the uh, more objective STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math? Well, I think then you get into the case of, of representation, right? Like like we've been told for how, I mean, even within, I think, my kid's lifetime, we had the, the Barbie saying math is hard. Um, like we're not, we are, um, whether consciously or unconsciously, sort of um, pushing students towards the opportunities that we think that they're best aligned for. And so in science and math, frequently we will see a lot of guys. Um, you know, and it's taken a long time for us to try to understand that, that, nope, we need to be consciously pushing women in those fields and creating opportunities for girls to have access to those kinds of opportunities as well. So I think it's, I think there's a lot to unpack 
to make sure that we are, at a very early age, making sure that everybody feels like those opportunities exist for them. But I also think, I mean, we have this big push towards STEM, and I think you and I are both humanities kids, and I think that's just as valuable. And in fact, from a personal perspective, I would argue that the critical thinking and, and writing skills are probably the most important things that we can teach anybody to be successful once they leave high school, because those are going to serve them well no matter what field they choose to go into or if they go into a trade or they go into the service or whatever else. I like to believe that it's those skills that will save me from being usurped by artificial intelligence. <laughs> Maybe that's naive. Hope Springs. <laughs> you and I both, man. Um, <laughs> we both depend on our words. So. Um, well, in terms of solutions, you mentioned earlier that, or I mentioned earlier, that Eastern Carver County Schools is advancing this uh, personalization initiative where Mm -hmm. people are uh, directed into the fields where they can be successful. Is that a solution to that demographic bias problem? Well, I think if applied correctly, (laughs) you know, and that's, it's still, that's still a work in progress. Um, I think absolutely. I mean, I think the idea of of personalized learning and the idea of equity actually go hand in hand because it's really it's giving each child the the tools and the resources that they need to be successful and so that's going to look different for every kid. I mean, we know that based on our own learning experiences there were things that we were good at, there were things that we needed more help. And so the idea is that I mean, and I have to say that when I was in school, I pretty much cruised, right? Like I didn't have to apply myself very hard to be successful. Not everyone's <laughs> as smart as you, Kaylee. Well, no, but but my point being that so that so that you don't have kids that just cruise. If you've got kids that get it, that they have the opportunity to extend their learning and go farther, and the kids that are struggling have the opportunity to get the, the skills and the tools and the help that they need to get where they need to be. So it it is that that looking at each kid and figuring out. Um, what do they need to continue to learn? What do they need to continue to grow? So that you don't have a kid that's either um, falling through the cracks or a kid that's just on cruise control and and not um, sort of maximizing their education experience. Well, that actually, that sounds really great. Uh, Let's be honest here, though. We live in America, Mm -hmm. and in America, it's all about money. Mm -hmm. Public schools... I think we would both agree are chronically underfunded, no matter how well they're funded. Correct. Can communities like yours or like Webster, New York, where I grew up, can they accommodate school budget tax increases? Uh, And if not, where should that funding come from? I mean, that's the big question, right? Um, I think people think... That's why I asked it, (laughs) Kaylee. It's a good thing you're not within arm's reach because I would have smacked you. Um, uh, so I think people, there's this conception that the federal government, because you've got this federal department of education, um, provides a huge amount of support for schools. And that's really not the case. Um, I think like 7% of our budget comes from the federal government. And I think that's probably universally true. And in fact, they don't meet a lot of their funding obligations, especially around specialized education services, um, which costs a lot of money. And so most school districts rely on state funding as the primary source for their revenue. Um, in our district's case, it's about 70% of our budget comes from the state. And then about 23% comes from property tax um, mm-hmm. from our local community. And so that's why you see schools having to go out for referendums, because what happens frequently, and this has been the case um, here in our district, is that the state funding has not kept pace with inflation. You know, we'll get maybe maybe a 2% if we're lucky in a year. Um, and so that gap between what the state can provide and what our actual costs are continues to grow, um, which is why districts continue to have to go out to property tax owners and ask them to support schools. And that's in Minnesota, which is typically you know pretty liberal right. and pretty generous. Yep, yep, and, and consistently have been. I mean, referendums. I don't know what the percentage is statewide, but for the most part, they pass. Um, but there is a push right now in in our state to go to fully funding education via the state um, as a means of of being more equitable in terms of funding because, I mean, it really is true. You have um, 
We have communities that are very supportive and very affluent and are able to pass operating levies um, without any trouble. And then you have communities, especially in rural parts of Minnesota, where they won't even go out for a referendum because they know that there's just not the support for them. And so they're continuing to have to make do with less and less and less. Um, and the quality of education suffers. And so you do see regional disparities. You do see significantly different opportunities that you're able to make to students based on location. The idea that and I don't, I don't know what kind of traction it'll have in the legislature. This is the first year they're really kind of trying to make that push. But the idea that the state commits to funding fully the needs of schools would be revolutionary in terms of, of sort of balancing the playbook uh, for schools across the community. Um, but it's not an easy thing. In fact, we went out for an operating referendum in November, and we lost. Um, and so we are looking at making $10 million in cuts um, in our district. And that's it's going to affect teachers, and it's going to affect students, and going to affect the whole community, and that's a really hard thing. Nobody wants that to happen, but the reality is, is you go out to the taxpayers, you make your case, and if they decide that they don't feel like that investment is important, then you have to deal with the money that you've got. Again, there's no good solution for it, but I think that if we could get states to fully fund, I think that would be the best model for everybody. I think it's a really heavy lift, though. I don't know that we'll get there. Yeah. I mean, I hate taxes. Everyone hates taxes. But what I hate even more than that... I don't hate taxes. I mean, no one likes forking over... I don't the love them. Right. But I like I like that the fire crew will come to my house if it's on fire. And I like that my kids go to a good school. And I like to drive on roads that don't have 12-foot deep potholes. So, I, I mean... But you know me. I'm a crunchy Democrat. So I'm not going to object to paying money for decent public services. What what I think bothers me even more than writing the check is when our lawmakers and and our citizens demonstrate short-term thinking. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that without investing in schools, they get an undereducated population, which just creates bigger problems down the road. Right. And I think that the other problem with that underfunding is that, I, I mean, everybody talks about college as if that's a foregone conclusion. And I don't, I don't think that four-year college is, is necessary for a significant portion of the population. And when you have budget cuts, the departments that are the first to get cut are your electives, and they're your, your technology and your, you know, your shop classes and your, you know, the, those kinds of real-life prep classes that actually for those folks who don't want to go to a four-year college are real avenues to experience for post-high school employment. Um, so it really is short-sighted in that, like, yes, we'll teach the core classes, but the classes that actually prepare you, whether it's for college or it's for the service or it's for working, those are the first ones to, to be on the chopping block when we don't have the funding to um, support them. That's a really interesting point. I didn't know that. I will definitely be paying closer attention to that um, that statewide funding referendum that you mentioned. And uh, I thank you very much for sharing your expertise on that. And, and hopefully you'll be able to write off this interview as public relations and therefore qualified as a work expense. <laughs> for the, Support for your the local time, schools. There's, there's for the, my... <laughs> for the time that you're taking on this interview, I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the question. All right. In this next segment, I ask my guests to ask me a question. It is called Turn the Tables. Turn the tables. So hit me with your best shot, Kate. All right. I've been pretty tough on you today, so what have you got for me? Well, I really dislike Gwyneth Paltrow. Like, really dislike Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't know how you feel about her, but anyway. Is that the um, question? No. Okay. <laughs> no, that's not a hard question. Um, uh, anyway, uh, she was in a movie in the, I think it was the 90s, although I guess it might have been the early aughts, called Sliding Doors. And the premise of that was it, it sort of showed the way the trajectory of a life split um, based on whether somebody made the train or not. Um, and so I have thought frequently um, about what my sliding doors moment would be, and sometimes we'll wonder what that alternate universe me looks like. And so I guess my question to you is, what is your sliding doors moment, and do you ever ponder what alternate Jason is doing right now? I have to say this is the easiest question that anyone on this podcast has asked me so far because the answer came to me immediately. It was because it was one of the most interesting decisions that I had to make and a difficult decision. 
just as a little background for any of my listeners who don't know the story, it's a little bit of a story. The job at which I work right now, the American Benefits Council, is the same company that I joined right out of college. So I've been here, there, more than 20 years now. And over that time, I've advanced up the ladder and everything. So I obviously like my bosses and the place and the work. But for the first five years or so of this job, I was the junior person in a two-person communications office working in a subject area that was totally new to me and can sometimes um, induce drowsiness, you might say. So around that time in the early aughts, I started looking around at other jobs. And on a lark, I completed an application for a job writing greeting cards at Hallmark. And, you know, it was more like a creative writing test, really. And I spent weeks working on it and obsessing over it and getting excited about it. Do you remember this? I do. All right. Yeah. So this was a a time in my life, you might recall, where I wasn't excited about very much of anything. And I found myself just really getting excited about this opportunity, The, the idea of writing creative, funny, sentimental things for a living sounded not just right up my alley, but it just sounded so romantic, like the kind of job someone might have in a Meg Ryan movie. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I was really proud of this submission that I sent off to Hallmark. And then I didn't hear back for a long time. And while I was waiting, that is basically when I met Jessica, the woman who was to become my wife. Because Everything is easy when you have nothing to lose, right? It's easy to apply for your job when you don't really like the one you have. And it's easy to find a a mate when you're not expressly looking for one. So just as I'm falling in love with this girl, that's when Hallmark calls. And then they fly me out to Kansas City for what seemed like a formality of an interview. I mean, it was like a foot massage of an interview. And, and then they offered me the job. And it was an interesting, exciting job that would impress people at my high school reunion. It was, now it's important to note, it, it was for less money than I was making at my current job. But it was in Kansas City, so at right. least my standard of living would have stayed roughly the same. But again, it, because it was in Kansas City, I didn't feel at that point and like a couple of months into this relationship, I didn't feel like I could realistically ask Jessica to move there with me or commit to another long distance relationship because we had both had, you know, kind of bad experiences after us just having been together for a few months. So obviously, because everyone knows I'm still here, I turned down the job, which sort of sounds like the plot of a Hallmark movie. Mm-hmm. But I second-guessed myself for a while after that, even though even though things turned out very well for me. You know, I got a promotion within a year. Uh, I'm, uh, I feel like an important part of this organization. Obviously, I have a, a, a home and a wife and a daughter that I would not have if I had taken that job. But I still think about that from time to time as the, like the one big decision in my life where there's a big what if. I mean, there are other decisions that I still ponder, like should I have gone to a different college or what if we had decided on a different number of kids? But I think that the big difference between those decisions and, and the Hallmark decision uh, here and after to be referred to as the Hallmark decision the difference is that those other choices weren't solely mine. This was like the one time when I had total agency and dominion over what my life was going to be like. And and it was just such a dramatic sort of choice. And so I still think about what my life would have been like if I had taken that particular job. I think you probably made the right choice. Well, sure. I mean... Uh, well, or you could have revolutionized the card industry. I mean, from the perspective of my career, I don't, I don't know what would have happened. The greeting card yeah. industry is certainly struggling right now. I mean, it's a wonderful company, 
it's possible that I could still be writing greeting cards or, or whatever, but I, I don't think that's any, by any means a, a certainty given the sure. nature of that business. It's because Hallmark is, a, I believe, a good company. Maybe I could have ended up in marketing or corporate communications or something anyway because they have so many other lines of business. Yeah. I'm actually not as curious about what would have happened career-wise. Mm. Personally, though, I mean, the, totally the, socio yeah, the socio-political demographic of Kansas and Missouri is not exactly in my wheelhouse. You know, yeah. without knowing for without knowing for sure, I think it it would have been pretty difficult for me to find someone, much less someone like Jessica, right. who shares my sensibilities. And so I, I wonder if I would have had to change myself. You know, would I have had to learn how to fish and appreciate ribs? <laughs> I'm I I think of myself as a pretty adaptable person. Which is good, but it's also sort of scary. Like, yeah. uh, who who would I be? I, I think I would probably do a lot more writing to my local representatives. But still, you you never know. I, it's hard to know what I would be like. And I guess there's a possibility that maybe Jessica would have followed me, if not immediately, eventually. Or maybe I just would have gotten too lonely and and given up and come back here to D.C. or sure. or gone back to Rochester. But it's hard to imagine a situation in which I walk through that door and end up as fulfilled as I am right now. That's an awesome answer. It makes me happy. It does. It makes me happy. But but the mystery also makes me kind of curious. Yeah. I think that's human nature. We all have those moments. So, Is that what you would have guessed I was yes. going to yeah. say to that question? Yeah, yeah, that would have been my guess. I think most people who know me know that that was like the big inflection point. And and I think it was also really important after I made that decision and after I made that commitment to something, mm -hmm. uh, call it call it Jessica or call it my job, I think my life sort of turned around. And it's easy to say, oh, that's the power of love. But uh, I, I, I think it's that, but I think it's more than that. I think it's finally feeling like I was committing to something that uh, helped give me direction and, and started to make me excited about all sorts of things. Yeah. Well, you're committing to something bigger than you, too, which is a big deal. Right. Oh. Right. Word. Well, good. All right. The next item on our list is word association. <laughs> okay. I will give you 10 words, one at a time. And all you have to do is say the first word or short phrase that comes into your head. Great. I call it the easiest game in podcasting. Are you ready to clear your mind? I'm, I'm well, as clear as it can be. All right. Here we go. Okay. Word. <laughs> Smith. <laughs> Were you laughing because I sounded like Justin Timberlake just then? Also, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He definitely sounded very white. Congratulations. <laughs> I don't know that that's worth a congratulations, but thanks anyway. You're welcome. All right, next word. Matt. Matt? Matt, M-A-T-T. -T. Okay, all right. Love. Fun. Killer. Fun killer. <laughs> that's not me, is it? No, it's okay, me. Good. That's you? Depends on the context. I just ask my children. <laughs> okay. Sorry, we can't explore that. <laughs> Folks. Hmm. Genuine. Run. Fast. Toilet. Humor. <laughs> Washington. Home. I thought there was a chance you were going to say toilet. But I'm glad you said home. <laughs> I don't think. If you'd said Capitol Hill, I might have said toilet. I tried to prime the pump there. All right. Continuing on. Great. Books. Solid. Jason. Aw. Kaylee, thank you. Hmm, you're welcome. Last one. Bananas. <laughs> Gwen Stefani. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I think that's totally that's a totally legit response. <laughs> All right. All right. For our grand finale, it's time for the segment that's half eulogy, half apology. I call it Eule Apologies. Listen, if you please, Eule Apologies. So I'm going to level set for a minute here. You and I, Kaylee, we've been friends for almost 20 years, which is kind of hard to believe, but it's almost 20 years. And over those 20 years, I would guess that you and I have hung out in person maybe a dozen times, maybe. And the the total amount of time would probably add up to maybe 24 hours. The vast, vast majority of our interaction has been via messages typed out on a keyboard. When I was younger and more optimistic and more romantic, I believed that idealistic things like love and friendship were constant and unstoppable and obstacles like physical distance were trivial. I thought that people who gave up on on love, uh, particularly in long-distance relationships, were simply weak or not committed enough. And then I actually tried a few long-distance relationships and failed miserably and got my heart crushed. And friends moved away and lost touch. And I came to think that relationships required shared experience to really endure. You have to actually share airspace with people. And then you and I became pen pals. And those disembodied conversations of ours restored my faith in the idea that some kinds of connections are transcendent, that really fulfilling relationships are not necessarily about sharing airspace or experiences or even a lot of common ground necessarily. It's about sharing the little trivial things, the things that individually you might not think to bother a person with, but when you add them all up, they add up to personality or maybe even a philosophy, you know, if you want to be really grandiose about it. I think the willingness to summon the energy and risk embarrassment to share those mundane or even embarrassing thoughts and and play with those thoughts a little bit, like revel in them, I think that's what the essence of love is. And I think that is the opportunity that you gave me mm-hmm. when you wrote back every day. I'm going to tell you something that I think I've told you before, but it's the truth, and it's pretty, so it bears repeating. In Kurt Vonnegut's novel Slapstick, he writes about his process in an extended prologue to the book. And he writes, and I'll I'll quote now, My sister was the person that I had always written for. She was the secret of whatever artistic unity I had ever achieved. She was the secret of my technique. Any creation which has any wholeness and harmoniousness, I suspect, was made by an artist or inventor with an audience of one in mind. And I think that if I had to pick one person who is like that for me, it would be you. And this is not to denigrate anyone else in my life. I know a lot of great writers. Of course, my wife and my daughter, I communicate with them on a a level that is even more transcendent in a different way. Mm -hmm. But because I met you at that time in my life when I really had nothing but my own thoughts and I had to put them down in a way that another person could understand them and that person was so often you, I think you ended up being that that person for me. One part of that, I think, is is that you're a great writer. I think you know in your bones that it's a, that's a big part of who you are. You can hear it when you talk, even. And impressing you is a really impressive thing. You're also a really great listener, or, or you know maybe reader is the right word, which not all great writers are. 
because you pay attention to the little things. But what makes me want to share with you is your perpetual willingness to play along and humor me. And with my other friends, I can sort of chalk that up to a pre-existing relationship. Like they have this history that they can call upon. But with you, that's how it's been from the very beginning. And I hope that you and I never lose that connection because it's uh, since I consider myself a writer, it's really important that I sort of have your voice living in me. Incredibly sweet. And it means a great deal. Well, now for apologies. There have been times when I feel like I wasn't fully there for you, whether you were here in D.C. or out in Wisconsin or Minnesota, whenever you were going through hard times, whatever those might have been, I'm worried that because we weren't next-door neighbors, I worry that I was too self-involved to check in on you when I should have. Now, I, I, I do think that you have a habit of avoiding people, of going into your mm-hmm. corner to lick your wounds, but that's no excuse. I should have tried harder to to be there, especially when I knew you were going through stuff. So I, I'm sorry for that. The one other time I want to apologize for is that time when I was supposed to be your date for your ex-boyfriend's <laughs> wedding in Wisconsin. But I had to bail out at the last moment because my aunt died. You had a very good experience. <laughs> I feel like maybe at the time you thought I was making it up because I was scared, but that is not true. I absolutely was looking forward to going there with you. I don't regret going to the funeral, obviously, but I always felt bad about leaving you in the lurch there, so I am sorry about that, Kaylee. Well, I never thought that you were lying about it. Okay. I was disappointed, because it would have been fun to hang out in Milwaukee. But Did you end up having a nice time? Yeah, it was all right. It's all right? It's all right. I saw a lot of people from high school, you know. All right. That can be good or bad, depending on the context, but it would have been more fun having somebody to be snarky with. But right. I made it through, and I never doubted you for a second. And I shall never doubt you for a second, Kaylee. Oh. Thus endeth the Hammersley Inquisition. Thank you for being my guest today. Well, this has been a joy. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. And thanks to all the listeners out there. If you have any comments, questions, compliments, or complaints, you can reach out at hammersley at gmail.com. Just a quick note, after this episode posts, I'll be taking a brief hiatus, probably just for a few weeks, while I attend to some business travel and... Uh, and, you know, parenting. But I promise to be back as long as people keep volunteering to be my guest. This is a reminder that you can also subscribe to my email newsletter, the Hammersley Exposition, at buttondown.email. Yes, that's dot email slash Hammersley. The main title theme was generously provided by Jason Menkes at Copilot Music and Sound. All opinions and bad jokes are solely my own and do not represent the views of my employer, my family, my friends, or especially my guests. Until next time, my name is Jason Hammersley. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The Inquisition. What a show. The Inquisition. Here we go. We know you're wishing that we'd go away. But the Inquisition's here and it's here to stay. Oh, boy.